This is Pops and your deep purpling. <laughs> I, got it, I got it as backwards. <laughs> You're listening to the Deep Purple Podcast, a fan podcast about one of the most legendary bands of all time, Deep Purple. We take a look at the music, history, and people behind the band Deep Purple and beyond. Welcome to the Deep Purple Podcast, the first and only podcast devoted to one of the greatest bands in rock history, Deep Purple. Today's episode is episode number 228, Joe Satriani surfing with the alien. And coming to you from the blazingly hot suburbs of Chicago, I'm your host, Nathan Beaudry. And coming to you from the suburbs of Providence, I'm your co-host, John Keyless Entry Matola. <laughs> the Keyless Entry. What's going on over there? I love it. I'm excited. I got one of those keyless entry keypads for my front door. Can't right. wait to install it this week. Oh, yeah. So you're going to be I'm going to go in. I'm curious about those, as we yeah. talked about before the show, because no, no, no one in my family ever locks a door. Um, <laughs> what Do you use an app to get in or is it like just a combo or what is it? Yeah, this one's I mean, they they have all sorts of crazy expensive ones. I got a moderately priced one, like no app or anything. It just has the keypad where you can set your code to get in. But it also has a fingerprint recognition thing. Ooh. Um, so and there is also like a key thing for which the front door of my building has um, the same thing, just the the keypad. But if it doesn't work or I guess they run on batteries, if it runs out, then you can manually unlock the deadbolt. Gotcha. Um but um, yeah, I like this because, um, you know, I just, you know, futz around with keys and I lock two doors. I lock the, the door and then I lock the, the deadbolt. And this one is just deadbolt because everybody knows the door lock doesn't do anything. So <laughs> does it um, have like a voice recognition thing like in sneakers? Remember that? Remember? Did you ever see sneakers? No. Oh, it's a great movie. You should definitely watch it. It's a Robert Redford, and mm -hmm. um, but there's like a there's a scene where uh, the guy that like has like the access to this building they need to get to is like this. He's a character. I forget what his name is. He's, you'd recognize him. He's in everything. He's like a, this famous character actor. Yeah. But um, he he's a kind of like a dorky guy, and then they get like Robert Redford's girlfriend in the movie like. Uh, approaches him and then like they go out on a date and she has like this list of words she needs to get him to try to say yeah. uh, and once they say it all they can string it along and use his voice to get into the building but the last word is like uh -huh. is the last word he has to, he has to say something like my name is blah blah my voice is my passport so <laughs> she's like she's like so do you travel and he's like no and like she can't figure it out so finally she's like at the end she's like um, you know, there's this one word that it's kind of silly, but it always turns me on when a man says it or whatever. And she's like, it's the word passport. Could you say it? And he's like, passport. And she's like, oh, that's so great. And he's like, okay. <laughs> so then they have this thing is like, my voice is my passport. <laughs> it's great. Uh, no, nothing, uh, nothing that high tech. So nobody can, nobody can swindle you into getting art. Well, I guess somebody could chop your thumbs off or whatever, but, um, Great. Thanks for giving rich ideas. <laughs> hey, should we go into the point where we tell everybody the specific day and time we're going to be at the Glenn Hughes show? <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. And I'm going to no, post actually, your, yes. I'm going to post your address too. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh my God. Well, that's all right. I mean, if Mr. Bill hasn't broken in by this point, then, uh, 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, her high tech, uh, high tech breaking and entering skills. She's very sleuth, you know? Yes. Yes, very much so. Yeah. Um, so I look, so I looked at the weather the other day and yeah. it said it was going to be 112 degrees this week in where I am in the, in the suburbs of Chicago. And, oh. um, I was like, that's pretty hot. That's like f- almost 45 degrees Celsius for our international listeners who have a better system than we do. Um, but now it's, it's, it's cooled down to a moderate 102 degrees. So, uh, but the heat index is like still 116 or something. So this is going to be so hot over there. I don't know. It never. And then by the weekend, it's going to be 75 degrees. So hmm. we're going to have two super hot days. 102 degrees is, I don't know, like 39 degrees Celsius, which is pretty damn hot. Um, but yeah, we're getting like three, like one hot day, two insanely hot days, and then it's just going to cool down. So yesterday Sheesh. was insanely hot, spent all day in the pool. And probably I'm like after work on Thursday, I'm just like told my family, just be at the pool. I'm just going to come in and just <laughs> jump into my work clothes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Jeez, well, good luck. Don't melt over there. Yeah, uh, well, usually, you know, we, we kind of are the preview of what you're getting. So I hope you don't get this these temperatures over there. It's going to be a rough uh, weekend for you, but um, I mean, we shall I, see. I don't think so. I mean, it's it's gotten very, uh, very moderate over here. The, um, you know, well, I mean, today it's very like humid again, but I mean, it's starting to get very moderate. The nights are getting cool, but yeah, um, you know, I'm trying to, I can see. Um, no, no, we're staying like, staying like 70s, like mid 70s, like low 80s at the most over the next like week and a half. Well, I hope it, rather. I hope it stays that way for you. So, yeah. So, um, hmm. well, let's see. How about, um, how about the projected weather for when the uh, Glenn Hughes show is? It's going to project out that far. It's like a month from now. Yep. <laughs> how do you project out that far? AccuWeather. It's it's they're not gonna know how hot it's gonna be in a month. Oh, they know. <laughs> they they guess. they know. It's a government thing, man. No, they know. They have a, no, look, they plan this 40, all. <laughs> it's and look, they have a forty-five day like thing out. So it's like uh, so. Tell everybody when Glenn Hughes is, and I'll tell you the weather. Uh. <laughs> Sorry, we're going out of order here. This is this. There's no precedent for this, folks. Let me scroll down on the show notes. Glenn oh, Hughes sorry. is September. What hell is it? Nineteenth, right? Nineteenth. Seventy degrees, mostly sunny. All right, right? we'll see. Well, I'm mainly clear. Forty-eight. See. I remember on my wedding day, it was. It ended up being like thirty degrees hotter than they thought it was going to be a week before. And every day I checked, I'm, it was going up and up and up and up. They don't know. I'm I'm just saying that when we go see Husey, it'll be very, very comfortable afternoon and a very nice, cool and refreshing evening. That will be perfect. Yeah. Well, we'll have to like maybe put some sort of pool on it. Like how how close is it? Like closest to the pin or whatever. How close mm-hmm. is it going to be to 70 degrees on September 19th? Because it could be it could be 100 degrees on September 19th and it could be 50. You don't know. I don't know. We can get a tornado. I mean, we've been having tornadoes. Yeah, you got tornadoes there the other day, right, right by you. It's crazy. Yeah. Hey, Mm -hmm. you don't like the weather in New England? Wait a minute. Oh. (laughs) No, seriously, it was like uh, a couple of towns over from me. There's there was one that like tore up somebody's backyard, and then that was like that was it. It's crazy. And then a few days later, we got a a hurricane in California, which. I don't remember ever happening. And then an earthquake at the same time. I'm like, holy shit. These poor yep. bastards. 
World's ending, folks. Yeah, it's pretty doesn't, rough. Doesn't. Yeah, so just remember, none of this means anything. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? Forget <laughs> it. Let's end the episode. Screw Deep Purple. None of this All matters. Right. Um, and I... So you know what, guys, you folks, your money is your money doesn't mean anything to you. So why don't you send it to us? There's a few th- ways you can support the show. We're 100% listener supported. We're ad free, and if you receive some value for our show and you want to give us some value back, please do so a number of ways. One is by uh, leaving us a five star review on Apple Podcasts. That won't cost you any money, uh, but the uh, lucky 100th uh, five star review will get an undisclosed gift. There's been some chatter in the in the uh, Discord, the patrons only Discord about um a very good idea for what that could be, but we will see what happens. So if you if you are we're getting closer and closer, so who knows, a few more reviews and you could be the lucky 100th reviewer. Um you can buy some merch at our Etsy store and you can also as previously stated become a patron on Patreon or on PayPal for as little as $1 a month. Help support the show. All that money goes right back into the show. It buys concert tickets for me and John, albums to review, uh and goes towards the Rainy Day Computer Fund, which uh I've been talking about for a long long time, but this thing just keeps trucking along. It's it's like an old diesel engine. Um you can also donate to us on Cash App at dollar sign DPPOD or support us on Kofi. And as previously stated, Glenn Hughes, September 19th, Worcester, uh, the Palladium, buy tickets, come see us, meet us. We're going to be going, uh, we're, it looks like we're going to be meeting up with Glenn before, like just before the show. So we'll probably like meet up with fans, go see Glenn, then uh, come back and meet up with everybody before the show again. So should be a lot of fun. Uh, speaking, yeah, I can't wait. It's going to be a blast. Speaking of support at our executive level, we have at the Uncommon Man Tear at $25, we have Ovis Nakfi and Purple Maniac at the, oh, my phone is in the way here, at the 15 Squid Tier, we have Alan. At the $10 Good Doctor Tier, we have Dr. Jill Brees and Dr. Mike Catan. Where did their jingle go? <laughs> Uh, oh, here it is. Somebody get me some doctors. Uh, thank you very much to the doctors. At the turn up to $11 tier, Clay Wambacher, Frank Teilgart, Mortensen, Mickelstein, and Will Porter, PhDPP. At the $10 Someone Came tier, we have Ryan M., Jeff Bryce, Victor Campos, and Better Call Saul Evans. And then at the Hughesoween by 2033 tier, we have Fielding Fowler. I'm sorry, guys. And at the In Memoriam tier, we have Gerald, Jerry, Kelly, and his wonderful family. Thank you so much to everybody for your generous support of the Deep Purple Podcast. Do have one uh, patron update that came into us. Uh, might have been right as we were recording or right after we recorded last week. Um, John Maselli writes in. Uh, so let's give him a little. And this is in regards to the episode number 226, Rainbow Live in Passaic, New Jersey. He says, hey, Nate, this is John Tony Danza Maselli. My friend Ooh. and I went to that show. So he was there at the show in Passaic. He says, oh, wow. we scalped tickets for the show, $50 for two. Met Richie for the first time and got his autograph. During the encore, Richie threw his strat at us, but we couldn't hold on. Too bad. Great show and memories. Keep rocking, guys. So pretty, pretty amazing. Awesome. Pretty amazing wow. memory. So one of our patrons went to a show that we reviewed. That's right. And it was 
John Maselli. <laughs> uh, thank you very much, John, for the Mona. <laughs> hey, who's gonna see you in a bra? Mrs. Rosini. <laughs> did I? Did we ever talk about that episode? We probably, maybe we did ages ago when, like, when Sam was buying like her first bra, like her sports bra. <laughs> Yeah. And like, I think like Tony goes to the store and buys her just like some like terrible bra or something. And she's like, Dad, I don't want it to be that. I want it to look, I, you know, I want it to look pretty. He's like, Oh, what does it matter if it's pretty? He's like, Well, you know, people are going to see it. He's like, Hey, who's going to see you in a bra? <laughs> and he, and she's like, You know, my friends. And he's like, Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> he's losing his mind. I couldn't find that one. I, lo- I did look for it because uh, I thought that would be a good one. But, uh, oh. That was that <laughs> Jeff, uh, well, me and Jeff used to watch it. They used to do the, um, uh, they used to do the double take. It was like Nick at night. It was when, there was this one summer where we were both unemployed. And so we yeah. would just like stay up to all hours of the night. We'd like get oh. a coffee at like 1130 at night. and just watch TV and play Sounds video magical. games. Yeah. Well, oh. well, it was magical except the fact that we were broke as shit. Um, <laughs> And there was a double take. It must have been Nick at night or something. It was like, and it was like two in a row of your favorite show. Oh, that's got to be a double take. And like <laughs> me and Jeff would be like, hey, we better go and get our coffee before. Oh, it's got to be a double take. And, then, and one of them was who's the boss. They do two in a row of who's the boss. And I think family ties. So we would watch nice. like all four of them. And, and that's one of Jeff's all time favorite lines. I can't wait till his daughter is like, you know, and like. I don't know, five or six years. Hey, Jeff's going to be, hey, who's going to see you in a bra? <laughs> oh. oh, that tagline, though, does sound like something that he would have gotten a kick out of. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Jeff, like sometimes you're walking around the house and be like, oh, it's got to be a double take. <laughs> and that's where we came. We would always go. And then whenever we would be driving and we'd see a blue van that looked like Tony Danza's van from the opening, we'd just go, clink, 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 clink. We just get all excited. Those were the time. Those were the days, man. We had oh, no yeah. money, but we 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 had fun. You lived on laughs. <laughs> we did. <laughs> oh did boy. So um, speaking of laughs, we got the the comedian Joe Satriani on the. Uh, I'll get more more about that later. But um, <laughs> were you paying attention because you looked surprised when I announced the show title? <laughs> you were like, what? <laughs> Satch? What? You had no, to have known. I- well, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't know till this afternoon. But <laughs> okay, you knew a little bit. <laughs> yeah, but I didn't just find out just now. Okay, I mean, but you, just, not... you, you made like a re- I wish people could have seen it because you were just like, oh? <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? I don't know. I might have been like, I might have been in my own head. Like when you were doing the announcements, I'm just like, oh, yeah, I forgot to take the dishes out of the dishwasher yeah it could have been i don't know could have been something like actually you know <laughs> before we talk about that I, I i i apologize but i am um i'm i'm behind on something and we, we've got a special segment that we uh, like to do it's called postcards from the edge of connecticut so postcards are coming in hot and heavy this one is a, a long postcard look at that some would say it is the size of a regular uh, envelope, mm. and it's uh, this. What is that? It's a little. It looks like a little resort, and there's some like old blue hairs sitting at a table <laughs> under an umbrella. Uh, and, that's and it gonna says, be me someday. Riedelbauer's Resort. I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong. Round Top, Green County, New York. 
And then it says Hummel Hummel. I don't know what that means, Hummel Hummel. Um, For 38 years, one of the leading resorts in the Blackhead Mountains, tennis on our double courts, swimming in our continuously running freshwater pool. Three shuffleboards and all the others are there. And all the other sports are there. Miles of hiking trails to waterfalls, ravines. Um, It says write to us for a booklet. Uh, And then it's, it's signed Nate. Now here are greetings from... For you, from the Catskills, a fine family resort. Um, and then it says, hi, Nate, it's raining on our vacation, but having fun anyway. Sister number two. And then it says, hi, from the Catskills. Polly, number three. Maybe maybe mm-hmm. the, uh, the Gardo's sister is named Polly. And then it says, note, big postcard, first class stamp. You have to use a full, a full money stamp for this one. Whoa. Yeah, it's pretty nice. So, yeah, I can't. I wish they had like a, I mean, judging. But oh, wait, copyright 1970. Okay, so, yeah, this is an old postcard. Put that one right in the uh, box. Didn't expect anything different. And then another one. My ring light is kind of getting caught there. This one is it looks like a living room of some sort. And it's a, a Louisa May Alcott's room, Orchard House, Concord, Massachusetts. This view shows the desk where Louisa May Alcott wrote Little Women, the story of her own family in 1868. Says, hey, Nate, now here's some Little Women for you. My <laughs> late wife, Gail, and I visited this house many years ago in no small part because she was a direct descendant of LMAs. Oh, wow. I did not know that. Great grandfather. I think of Gail every time I hear Deep Purple's Lazy because she loved that song, The Roback. Ah, oh, touching note about the Roback's wife? No. Look at that. But that's not all. I got, you know, I start to There's open more? packages now and I get suspicious. And yeah. this one, I was like, what is this? I didn't order anything. And I start opening it and I'm like, this has got to be something from the Roback. So, um, wait, open this package. It says, what is this? Choose personalized party or ready designs. There's a box here with a rubber band around it. Let's open it up. Oh, it's filled. It's filled with Deep Purple podcast coasters. Wow. Look at those. That's awesome. Those are nice. That is awesome. They look really good. All right. Well, now now you got to bring them when you come out. Yeah, so we'll have to. Yeah, we exactly. I'm going to have to pack them. Should have sent them to you. <laughs> I'll. Um, All right. Yeah, I'll bring them. And so we can we can we're going to have to autograph them and sign them. We'll have to take them everywhere we go. Look at that. Actually, so I, that'll be good. That I've could be my, a, that could be a uh, gift. I've got my stack of coast signed coasters here right by the computer, so we got a lot of uh wow. Sweet. My goodness. That. That's we love really it, folks. cool. We love to see it. Well, thank you everybody for your generous uh mailbag items. This, this we're re- turning into a real mailbag segment here. I know, right? Pretty crazy. Um somebody hit me up for for an address today, so <laughs> I think we're going to be getting more. <laughs> So wow. we'll, we'll see what happens. All right. Well, thank you. So anyway, sorry. Back to Surfing with the Alien. John, tell me a little bit about your history with this album while I try to find my CD. Ooh. So this album, um, I found out about when I was, um, I want to say I was like 12. I was just getting into music, I think. So um, I remember that like I had uh, ridden my bike to this uh, this cassette store that was uh, like down the street from my house or 
Mm, yeah, roughly, roughly down the street, but, um, it was, um, yeah, it was like, I wanted to go in there and look for music, but I had no idea what to look for. You know what I mean? Cause I was into like two bands, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and so when I was like, I, I remember I went in and I said to the, the guy behind the counter, I'm just like, oh, you know, he's like, are you looking for anything? Like, what are you looking for? You know and I'm like, oh, I don't know. I mean, do you know, like, do you any like good guitar players? Like, like just like rocket rock guitar music or whatever. Yep. And he whipped out this cassette, which I mean, was got to be fairly recent because it was 87. So that was around 88. So it was yep. probably, you know, a year old, if that. And he's just like this guy, you know, <laughs> this guy. He, was, he was just like, this is this is who you want to listen to if you like good guitar music. And so, you know, I took like the 10 or $12, all of the 10 or $12 that I had to my name and plunked it down on this cassette, um, not having heard it, and then uh, took it home. And um, yeah, I, I don't remember if my my impressions were that I was like blown away because I wasn't, I didn't know what to expect, you know? Like I didn't know yeah. that it was an instrumental rock album. I, I don't think that I even really knew that that was a thing. But, you know, it definitely you know, held my attention. You know, I mean, we were back in that day and age where it's like, if you, if you bought something with your money, you're listening to it, whether you love it or not. Oh yeah, for sure. You know, I just remember thinking like he had a wild guitar tone and I was like, you know, waiting for vocals. There were no vocals, you know, (laughs) you were waiting a long time. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and then of course, like, um, you know, um, when, um, you know, pops wound up coming in and like, you know, him and him and my mom were not supportive at all of my <laughs> being into music, which was like ridiculous. They were just like, you know, uh, I make fun of them for it now, but I mean, it, when I look back on it, it was just ridiculous how hook, line and sinker, they fell for the whole, like music is evil. Like, oh, thing, yeah, you yeah. Know? it's just like, they were those kind of parents. So they like, um, it's just funny. Know, Cause they're like, not like they, you know. They don't seem like, like, even like later on, like when you were like older, like yeah. you know, older, like, you know, 15, 16, 17, they didn't seem like yeah. that, but well, it seems like up. they got over it early. Yeah, they gave up. I mean, but they were, <laughs> well, but I mean, our I son's what, just going to be evil. What are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> but I think for more for pops, it was just kind of like he, like he found it because it's like, you know, when you, when you're a kid and you got stuff in your room, your parents come in, they'll, they'll notice when there's something there because they, they buy everything. So if there's something there that's out of place, my dad like picked it up and he's like, where did you get this? You know, (laughs) where did you learn this? (laughs) But I think it was more like, you know, we gave you an allowance and you better not have spent it on a cassette, you know? And I don't know what he wanted me to do with it at like 12 (laughs) years old, like fucking say, put it away in my 401k or something. But you know, yeah, I think of what you'd have now. And, <laughs> but I remember I like, um, I, um, I had to, I had to make something up. So I lied to him and I told him that, um, you know, cause they knew I went to the music store and I said, Oh, the, the guy there lent it to me. <laughs> and he's just like, he lent it to you. And I was like, yeah. Um, and that's what I said about a lot of things that I had. Like, <laughs> this you know, guy I was at the like, music store doesn't sound like a good businessman. I'm going to go talk to him <laughs> and give him some money. Hey, stop giving these kids these cassettes for free. You're going to go out of business. What are you talking about, old man? I mean, I don't know if he, I don't know if he bought it, but I, I remember I tried to do the same thing with an Aussie t-shirt. Like it was around the no rest for the wicked. <laughs> no, I'm just time. borrowing it from the store. 
<laughs> no, that's what I did. I got it. And like I was I put it on and it was a picture of like like back then it was so scandalous. It was a picture of Ozzy with like a crown of thorns. Oh, yeah, yeah. And my parents were very like religious back then, much, much more so than they are now. So as soon as my dad saw that, he was just like, take it off, give it back. Like, I don't care where you got it from. Like I, I, I saw, I got it from a friend in school, you know, like he, he lent it to me. And it's like, after a while, they're like, people are not lending you this shit. <laughs> Do you Liar. own anything? <laughs> Everyone's lending you stuff. No, I have, I have everything on layaway. You know, it's like, <laughs> a, but, um, a rent to own on this t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> I pay them yeah, $2 well, a week. <laughs> well, because I mean, I really wanted this shit and like my parents just didn't want me to have it. You know, I don't know if it's like, I think it was a combination of just like, they didn't want me spending like my allowance or any money that I earned doing odd jobs on this stuff that they thought was a waste. But at the same time, they were also like, didn't agree with, you know, the, um, you know, the kind of the imagery and like, you know, what, whatever, you know, was being put out at that time that like, you know, this kind of music could do to you, you know? So it's just like, without even looking into it, you know? So it's, um, you know, you're going to be like that, um, at. that after school special with, I think it's like Helen Hunt and she like takes PCP and she just goes, <laughs> she, drunk, she jumps out the window and just lands on a pile of broken glass dead. Uh. Like, oh, I'm not touching that. I don't know what PCP is, but I'm not touching it. Well, I think more for this, like, uh, you know, uh, Pops didn't think that uh, Satriani was, um, you know, as much evil as it was. Like, he just didn't, like, agree that I with me that I spent my money on, you know, music. Which <laughs> You're like, Dad, how did you get all these records? <laughs> well, that's my whole He's point. He's like, oh, they lent, it, they lent them to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing is, is, like, my whole life, my dad has, like, really loved music so much. So the why, like, why I always felt like he was trying to, like, kind of block me from like discovering it or not encouraging, you know, that, you know, um, that part of, uh, you know, my, um, you know, my, my love for something is very confusing because it's just like, you know, he, he was the one, like both of my parents really liked music. Pops was the one that was like specifically, you know, you remember the father's day episode, he had specific bands and stuff that yeah, you named rock, that he really liked. Too, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's where I discovered all the, the cool records that he had, uh, you know, down the basement and everything. So, I mean, it was just like, as an adult, it's just very confusing. I'm sure that like, you know, if I asked him now, he would, he would play the, he would play the, I don't remember card. Yeah. But I, mean, I wasn't knows? that strict. That never happened. It, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, you know, my dad, it's like, <laughs> yeah, I never, I never did that. <laughs> I never said you couldn't spend your money on records. He's like, ah, you with all that stuff, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but anyway, that's, uh, that's my story. I veered off a little bit from it, but. Yeah. Yeah. I had this one and uh, I think we must have talked about this in our last Satriani episode, but I had this album and uh, Not of This Earth. And then the other mm -hmm. one is, is it Flying in a Blue Dream? Is yeah. that the one? Yeah. That was the, the one that, that was the one that came out after Surfing with the Alien. So, and like, I got Surfing with the Alien first. And then the other two, yeah. you know, kind of like how we discovered everything else. We just bought anything with his name on it. So, well, like you said, like this came out in 87. I, I got it probably pretty shortly after it came out and it was kind of mm. the same thing i was really into comic books when i was a young kid uh, um yeah. so like this was like just a perfect crossover for me when I, I just remembered this this album cover we'll get into it in a little bit but so vividly just being like whoa this is so cool like i would have bought this regardless of what it was because i was like it's so cool it's comic books and i wasn't even really into the silver surfer but i uh i just remember uh 
it was either my cousin Jeff or my cousin Kenny, his older brother, had the album. And so I was like, I've got to get this. And I don't remember. But I, I just looked. I can't find it. But it's in there somewhere in that pile. But um, uh, yeah, and I just I, I remember just it being like something totally different because I'd probably already started listening to, you know, I'd listen to Ozzy and stuff like that. But this is my my entry into like mute, like uh, instrumental guitar god stuff. Mm-hmm. And this wasn't, you know, this is so common now, but even back then, you know, you had a lot of, you know, jazz guys and things, but you didn't have a lot of metal guys releasing like albums like this. It was to no, me it was I just mean, very new. We we talked about it before, like around this time when this stuff was coming out, it was like this, um Steve Vai, Passion of Warfare. Um, you know, that for me that was it. Like these were the two guys that I knew and um you know, it was because Steve Vai had the uh, the the uh, the video on MTV. Um, you oh, know, with the, the with the little Steve Vai, with the yeah, with the kid and everything like that. So that came out, and um, yeah, I don't know, um, you know, how or why it was so popular. At least in that, you know, probably with the rock circles or anything. But I just find it kind of amazing that I just stumbled onto these two guys that were both involved with Deep Purple, White Snake, like the mm-hmm. whole. Deep Purple family, you know, and it was just like by with no other way except for just like total coincidence. Well, I think that was part of the mythos of of uh, Joe Satriani was like, OK, you know, Metallica and Kirk Hammett and, you know, Steve Vai. Yeah. This is the guy who was their teacher. And you know, you're like, whoa, <laughs> like it was like right, in, in, was Star, in thing, Star Wars yeah. when like Darth Vader's the bad guy. Then all of a sudden, like, oh, the emperor comes in is like, whoa, there's a there's a guy over him. <laughs> like this yeah. guy must be a bad mofo Um, right right and um yeah i just i I just remember uh just kind of really digging it because it was something so new sounding and it was such a new novel idea but um yeah Yeah. this is a it was an exciting time learning about all that stuff and again like we've talked about a million times without veering too much into old fart territory when you're finding out (laughs) stuff like that then you're just hearing stuff from your friends or reading little bits and pieces in magazines and trying to piece stuff together and it's it's exciting to kind of find it out but Mm. but anyway yeah we we talked about his last album i forget which episode it was but you can look it up we we did not of this earth um uh and then this is his follow-up album the album was put together on a limited budget of thirteen thousand dollars uh it's a pretty small amount to record an album satriani used two kramer pacer guitars and a modified strat where he changed the pickups to get different sounds and it sounds like he actually changed them like physically removed them and put new (laughs) pickups in to get different sounds Uh, he used a roland jc 120 and a marshall 68 half stack and a Rockman. i don't know what Rockman is um sure somebody will write in now and tell me um uh and then uh he basically had to record in whatever rooms were available in whatever studios at the time because of the limited budget. Um, he used a lot of drum machine on this album again, like on the first album. Um, and then Jeff Campitelli, who was his drummer in Squares, is back for this album again. He overdubbed hi-hats, toms, and cymbals, and snare. And it was recorded at... Uh, and recorded and mixed at Alpha and Omega Recording and Hyde Street Studios in San Francisco. Mm. Um, so the personnel for this one on a percussion we have bongo bob smith 
Oh, Bago Bob. So he got quite a resume. He played with Whitney Houston, Aretha Franklin, James Brown, Clarence Clemens. So, um, you know, a lot of very different music from this. <laughs> I don't know if he's no just getting slouch, though. No, no, not at all. But so I guess he's getting he was getting his feet wet with Joe Satriani. And then, of course, we talked about in drums, Jeff Campitelli. Oh, um, hey. And then uh, Joe Satriani, of course, uh, engineer and producer John Cunaberti. He worked with the Dead Kennedys, Tracy Chapman, um, uh, PJ Harvey, Aaron Neville, and the Grateful Dead. And then Jeff Krieger did some of the sound design and programming uh, for this album. So So did Satriani do bass as well? Yeah, it's one of those things kind of like our last episode. It doesn't doesn't credit anyone with bass, but I'm assuming it's got to be Satriani. Oh, yeah, it does. I'm sorry. It says guitar, bass, keyboards, percussion, drum programming, and all he wrote all the songs. So there you Ah, go. So this was this was kind of a. uh, Yeah. DIY session type of thing. Yep. Yeah. I always like that. Like those, uh, those musicians that did that, like, uh, they're very different, but I mean, it was like him, uh, like the, the Lenny Kravitz first album. Yes. Yep. You know, stuff like that. I I feel like around this time they were like a lot of albums here or there was like, Oh, this one guy like Mm -hmm. recorded the whole thing. And like, you're like, Whoa. And even, um, you know, Stevie wonder, did a lot of did mm-hmm. a lot of that, you know. It was just mm-hmm. amazing. He like recorded it all, did all the keyboards, all the uh, pl- played all the drums, did the production. It's like incredible. Yeah, we, I, which I mean, let's let's give him a little bit more credit because, um, you know, can't see anything. <laughs> I was like, how's how I was like, how's John gonna put this delicately? I'm like, oh, he's not going to. <laughs> well, there's no other way to do it. I mean, you got you got a guy, you got a guy like I mean, Stevie Wonder's just like a, a prodigy in every way. I mean, you just like yeah, you hear a story of a guy like him that's just like plays all these instruments, produces everything like that, and he's great on top of it. And you're just like, like how how can how can he be so amazing? Yeah, and just managing the mixer and everything is crazy. And yeah. I saw something with him the other day that popped up on I don't know it was probably like an Instagram reel or something where he's talking about like he's going track through track by track through one of his songs. Can't remember which song it was. One of the really famous ones but he's like here i am playing the drums he's like you can hear me hitting a lot of the sides of the drums and the rims <laughs> but like you know listening to the full thing on the album you can't even tell but he's just kind of joking around about it and of course you know there's that um that conspiracy theory that stevie wonder is not blind <laughs> no but you don't know that? yeah there's like uh, my, my brother-in-law kind of subscribes to this th- i still can't tell if he's joking or not because he's not like a conspiracy guy but he's like yeah. he's like that guy can see like there's no way he's blind because this is like this one video where like there's a mic about to fall like a mic stands about to fall over and he just reaches out and catches it <laughs> and people are like how did he see that and it's like oh, he probably just felt it moving or whatever but so people there's, use that as the yeah, basis exactly. for the fact that i was like i was like really what has he got to prove at this point by pretending he's blind you know like <laughs> he's like, he's like, I've been running this scam for 50 years. Or something. Yeah, he's going to come out on his deathbed and be like, ah, suckers. It's like, it, it doesn't, <laughs> but it doesn't change anything. It's like, okay, you're not blind. Your, your music's still awesome. So who cares? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but oh. anyway, um, so yeah. So then we've got the album art, which we, you know, kind of talked about a little bit already. But uh, what do you think of this album cover? I never knew that this was a a comic book thing. So, um, you like know, nev- I, I just like never yeah. until right now. No, no. I mean, I did like, you I know, mean, way at first after you the fact. yeah, at first, like when I first got this album, like when I was 12, I was just mesmerized by like all of the, like these primary colors, like yeah. red, blue, yellow. I mean, it's very like, you know, 
Very um, striking. Yeah, and I mean, it's a different kind of album cover because, I mean, you know, I was into into like, you know, glam bands and, you know, Ozzy and stuff. So you would have like pictures of the band or like, you know, kind of really glam stuff. So this was very different. And like I said, the colors are like, I mean, red and blue is like Superman colors, which I guess yeah. kind of goes along and with And the, the yellow. Yeah, the uh, the kind of superhero thing. But um, yeah, I, I, I always thought that it was a pretty, um, pretty interesting cover. And then when I found out the history behind it, and then when he did reissues, he had to remove this uh this image or whatever and just do the the colors or whatever it was like uh you know a whole thing it just makes it even more interesting how he just kind of was like i guess used did he use this and like not have the rights or something and yeah well what happened was um apparently the story goes that he was originally going to call this album lord of uh, lord of karma or lords of karma karma off of Mm -hmm. one of the tracks on the album and he was doing an interview with this and I'm trying to find out who it was. If anybody knows, let me know. But um, he was doing an interview with a, his first interview for the album. He recorded it in the summer. It was coming out in October. And he did an interview with this British journalist that said he really liked the album. He listened to it, but he said, thought the album title was terrible and that it was going to give people the wrong idea about what the music was. Um, and he says, I don't understand why guitarists always go into some like spiritual Indian type type thing. Like, just don't call it that. So Joe called the label and was like, hey, is it too late to change the title? And they said no. So he changed it to Surfing with the Alien, which was another title on the album. And the way it goes is he says he didn't really – um, he didn't know the Silver Surfer at all. He wasn't really and <laughs> uh, much like you couldn't get the music. His parents wouldn't let him read comic books. So he didn't know the Silver Surfer. Um but uh, Jim Kozlowski, which was one of his uh, pr- production managers, was a big fan of comics. And he went up to Marvel and Marvel at that. This is like, ni- you know, 1987. Marvel was not what it is now, which is, this, you know, powerhouse driven by Disney and everything. So he they were managed to license it for 20 years for five thousand dollars. They could license the character to use on the album cover. So Satriani was saying that every year they kept kind of. Uh, every year after the 20 years, they'd be like, oh, you want to renew that again? Well, it's going to be this much. It's going to be that much. And they basically moved it to a point where he's like, I can't afford to keep this album cover going. So <laughs> they had to redo the album cover, which is kind of shitty because like, you know, I mean, God, at this point, the album's so old, who cares? Yeah. Um, but that's <laughs> not how keep it. that's not how Marvel sits on billions of dollars, I guess, despite being nice guys. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So he changed the he changed the artwork because they just basically priced them out of the market. But um, I guess they were appreciative at the time. This brought Joe. They had recently released Silver Surfer as its own comic book, and Joe Satriani. Uh, they they named a planet that the Silver Surfer goes to Satriani in his in his honor, which is a funny name nice. for a planet. Um, and yeah, that's that's kind of how the story goes as I understand it. Um, so yeah, this is the original album cover, and I've got I've got a picture somewhere that that you remember my across the street neighbor Jean, who mm-hmm. uh, you know we. He was, a, he was a interesting character. Um, yes. We called him the Man in Black. He wore all black. He had long black hair, and he uh, he was a very good artist. He drew he drew some Silver Surfer paintings for my dad. I'll have to see if I can dig them out. I think they might be here somewhere. Um, but uh, this album cover. So the art direction was by David Bett, who currently works at Columbia Records. He also did the cover for remember Twenty Four Seven Spies. <laughs> I used to have oh, that album. 
Yeah, it's that sounds really familiar. Yeah, Gumbo Millennium was the name of it. I just remember they had this song called Spies on Piano, where they were just like playing the piano. And uh, Paul used to yeah. think it was funny. Yeah, I feel like I, I feel like I know that from you guys because yeah, it sounds like something you would find amusing. Yeah, and it was. So yeah, so anyway, <laughs> he did the um, he did all of uh, all of that artwork. He worked with um, uh, additional stuff with uh, with with. Satriani, he worked with Peter Frampton. Um, and then he, what else do we have here? Uh, Easy E, Wu Tang Clan. He did the Ooh. cover for Honkin' on Bobo. <laughs> Everyone's favorite uh, Aerosmith album. Dumbest name for an album I've ever heard. <laughs> it really is bad. Honkin' on Bobo. Um, and then it's, like he, it's supposed to be like you're blowing into a harmonica, get it? You're honking on it. And its name is Bobo for some reason. No, it just sounds like you're banging a circus clown or something. <laughs> I'm honking on Bobo. <laughs> just, you know, you're in there, you're like. <laughs> it's, he's, as you're doing it, you squeeze his nose. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, hilarious. Um, so, um, yeah. And then um, the cover. Uh, yeah, it's funny, like, that he's given the art direction for this, but they basically just took a picture of the Silver Surfer and put it on there, so I don't know what he, what really was involved with that. Um, uh. and then, uh, the cover, the concept was by Jim Kozlowski, his manager, who was from, um, East Hartford, Connecticut. Hmm. My goodness. Um, he worked in New York City for Relativity Records. Uh, sadly passed away in 2021. Um, and then, interesting what you were talking about, about the album imagery Satriani had this stipulation in his contract where his album art could not have anything uh like gory or violent or negative so um so kind of cool he did he just didn't want to have that and he said that like having this sort of um title for the album would would make it seem like you know he was a you know that he had a sense of humor. Um, he, he said he was unfamiliar with it, but he yeah. turned, he basically he said he loved science fiction and like in all science fiction stuff, aliens come to earth to enslave us or to kill us. But wouldn't it be fun if they came to do something fun like surf? <laughs> so that was his idea yeah, for it. And then Jim Kozlowski being the comic book guy was like, well, there's a guy called the silver surfer. And that's how this came about. All right. That's cool. Um, and then as we said, that's the revised cover, which looks they did a really good job keeping the same feeling of it, but they changed it to just a silver guitar. Yeah. Um, and they kept the background kind of the same. It's based on this um, uh, this panel from uh, the first Silver Surfer comic in 1982, where uh, where the Silver Surfer is flying out of like Galactus's hand, and then this is the full piece of art right here with the, the hand nice. and everything. Um, I think this is an Australian release, but there's a picture of Joe Satriani, uh, really. Uh, Cutting away. Can't tell which bridge is that is. Is the it might be like the Verrazano bridge or something. Um look at his face. He's like ooh. he's like, ooh, look at that. Look at that arpeggio. <laughs> um and then yeah, I had the uh one of these. I, th I can't remember which one I had. If I had the blue one or the, the black one, there's a there's a CD with blue writing and one with black writing. But hopefully mm -hmm. I'll find my CD later. And with the track listing on it, and that's about it. And this is probably what you had, the cassette tape. Yes, I did. With a little shrunken down Silver Surfer on there, and mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that's the that's the album art. Um, all right. Well, before we um get on to anything else, do we want to uh, 
thank our next level of patrons. Thank them, people. Thank those people. All right. Well, coming in at the $7.77 Keep It Warm Rat tier, we have Michael Vader. At the $6.99 New Nice Price tier, we have Spike the Rock Cat and Sugar Tea. At the episode $6.66 tier, we have Steve Coldwell and Arthur Smith. Getting support from the patron Arthur Smith. We have Anton Glaving and Charles Meadows. At the $6.65 Almost Evil tier, Kenny Wymore and Michael Bagford. At the $5.99, the nice price tier, Robert Smith, Peter from Illinois, and Carl Helberg. And at the 60 kroner Scandinavian Knights tier, we have Newt Morton Johansson. At the $5.55 What's Going On Here tier, we have Richard Fusey. And at the $5 Money Lender tier, we have John Convery. German Heindel, Adrian Hernandez, Jesper Elman, Alexi, the Perfect Stranger, Slepikoff, Mark Hodgetts, Kev Roberts, Percival Frequency, Scott Zern, Cynthia Doobie, Raf Kaff, and Coyote Bongwater. All right. Thank you so much to all of you for your generous support of the Deep Purple Podcast. Whew, well, it's been a while for me since I listened to this one. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, me too. I, I, I occasionally. This is, why I we had a, this is why I thought we had a, uh, a connection problem earlier. <laughs> no, the connection, the, the, the wiring is loose in my brains. That's all. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I occasionally listen to a couple of tracks off of uh, this one, or I have in the past, I would say in the past few years, but I don't know if I've listened all the way through, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's been a while for me. All right. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, it was something I had on, you know, kind of. Kind of uh, regular rotation, I would say, at the time. Um, so um, I'm excited to uh, listen to it again because it's been a really long time. So we're mm. ready to get into the tracks. Let's do it. I'm doing the Silver Surfer. <laughs> it works great on the audio podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Just picture me doing that. The silver surfer. Picture him doing the, the typical surfer pose. All yeah. right. So here we go. The opening track, the titular surfing with the alien. Oh, yeah. Has a good surfing vibe to it. Yeah. The thing that always struck me about his lead guitar tone was just how like, just like, just like bathed in delay it is, or a nub flange. I mean, yeah. Just love a flangey tone. And I mean, he's he's very like, you know, definitely a shred player. But I mean, he's so melodic here. He's like bending his notes and creating a melody. Yeah, he's he's that that is the cool thing about him. It's almost like he's <laughs> that's nice. Then he goes into this. But it's almost this is like the guitar solo. Like he has like these melodies and then solo parts. 
Yeah. But I mean, he builds it around a really good melody. Yeah, like you could imagine them writing lyrics and having a singer deliver the same melody. And I really like the uh, the rhythm too. It's almost like kind of a blues thing. Dun, dun, yeah. dun, 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 dun. This is not lazy blues. And that whole. Dun, 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 dun. But even the tone on his uh, his lead tone is kind of almost like otherworldly. Yeah. Then here comes another swoosh. I think. I think there's another swoosh that comes, doesn't it? Yeah. Maybe it's here. Oh, multiple swooshes. <laughs> nice. And it's one like I wonder if I heard this for the first time now if I would like it or if I just have like, how much does nostalgia play a factor? Because it just brings back so many great memories. Oh, yeah. Come on, I mean, objectively, this is great playing. Oh, yeah. Great little bass run at the end. fade out I, I do have something else to, to add that I almost forgot to mention okay but I've got the um, I've got the Hal Leonard uh, book on how to play all this <laughs> that Jesus doesn't mean any good <laughs> you'll Probably note look at it and we're like uh... yeah. you'll note that I can't play any of this <laughs> the book doesn't work <laughs> This book is bogus, um, but it's it's interesting because there's so Jesse Gress um, transcribes all the solos. There's a um, there's an intro by Wolf Marshall, all these old names, and then and then there's all these like notes. So uh, some of these are a little technical, um, just but, a little. But we'll see we'll see how they go. But there's like a long. It's uh, apart from just the, the the notation and the tablature is like this long explanation. It says um, from from the guy who transcribed it after the fade in of control room dialogue surfing. Um, 
literally explodes using an overdubbed jet plane sample into the opening rhythm figure based on G Dorian mode. The melody enters eight bars later and alternates between phrasing using both the major and minor third B and B flat combined modality of Dorian and Mixolydian modes is achieved through using picks, pitch axis of G. So this goes on and on and on to just like to describe all the like things that he's doing you know and then he goes through it another jet plane break we hit hard into the first guitar solo and on the beat of four launching into a series of trilled sextuplets based on the c sharp phrygian dominant mode the fifth mode of f sharp harmonic minor so this is (laughs) john's like oh my god my brain hurts but it's it's really interesting um to read through this because there's some really good stuff but then of course they just start going into phrygian locrian bob all these modes and you're like okay what whatever um but it's it's uh, and then he says, uh, whether listening to or performing this tune, one is promised two things: sheer exhilaration followed by sheer exhaustion. Surfs up. <laughs> he mentions a Chuck Berry style double stop bends and muted lines playing in diatonic thirds before the fade out. So, okay, I can see that. See, I knew that there was kind of a bluesy type of thing to it. Just couldn't really, you know, put my finger on it, but. You were like, I you, mean, you, diatonic thirds was on the tip of your tongue. <laughs> I think I more related to the whole Chuck Berry thing than the diatonic thirds. Yes. <laughs> yeah, the Chuck Berry was what you were thinking, not the, oh, those, wait, wait a second, play that back? Just what I thought, diatonic thirds. Um, uh, always. <laughs> always was classic Satch. Um, classic diatonic third. But I feel like, so obviously I'm not going to get too into that because like, I get it, but I don't really get it. Like, I understand the modes and everything, but when they start going all this, like, I don't know. I, I get, I I don't know or understand how to really incorporate modes in way playing, but I did take enough lessons to, to know what they are and mm-hmm. what makes them sound the way they sound and everything. That's about as far as my knowledge goes. So I won't get too inside baseball on this, but mm-hmm. it's interesting to see. Um, it's interesting, and, and I also think it's hard to talk about Satriani and not talk about things on a more technical level because he's such a technical player. So, I mean, all I knew is, is when you started reading from that book, like I started to feel like I did when I was in high school and my math teacher started talking. <laughs> yes. It's just like I started to get lightheaded and... Yeah. yeah. I started to feel like I felt when my guitar teacher was teaching me about modes. <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> you just like all of a sudden you're just like... Uh, <laughs> you you okay. just want to be like, I'm going to stop you right there. I'm never going to do any of that. <laughs> <laughs> just, show, just show me how to play some cool stuff. It's like, oh, I get it. It's like I could do. Okay, I'll play the Mixolydian mode of the scale. Okay, now how what am I going to do with that? I don't know how to put that into, into, into use. Like, it's just too much. But <laughs> anyway, how do you rank surfing with the alien? That was a, um, I, I feel that was a very strong opener. I love it. I give it a five. Oh my goodness. Five right out of the, right out of the gate. Right out of the gate. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I mean, what a great track. I mean, yeah, it, it brings back a lot of great memories too, but I mean, it's just like, uh, it, if it, if it didn't hold up, like, I mean, I hear some stuff that, you know, maybe I liked when I was younger and I'm like, Ugh, what was I thinking? You know, mm-hmm. and other things I listened to when I was like, man, I never, like, it's even better now. I mean, it just it holds up so well. It's just so cool. It's it's just great playing, great sounds. Like, you know, I feel like you could just strip away, like, not that there are a lot of effects that tie it to the time, but it's just like, you could a, do a version a lot of, of it stuff today. sounds more dated than this. 
yeah, exactly. It's still an interesting, like, cool song. Like, you could hear, you know, you could hear him play it live now, and it would, you know, sure would still rock. Yep. Hey, you know what? I'm going to give it a 5-2. Super strong. I think the thing I like about it, and, you know, I think there's a large nostalgia factor there, but... um it's fun, you know, it just sounds fun and enjoy. It's not like a lot of the the metal that would be going on around that time that was just like really dark. And he, yeah. he, he he does some of that stuff, but I think mostly, you know, and that's that is honestly where his toying around with modes really works is, you know, some modes sound super, super dark and some modes sound like more happy. And, you know, whatever he's doing on this song sounds really, really cool. And it's, it's a fun, upbeat sort of sort of song. Now, I think yeah, I read carbon. that this is the only song. OK, this he says the solos were recorded with an uh, even even tied H949, which, which was malfunctioning as it was the end studio time. They went they recorded it live. So, you know, sometimes you'd record these guitar solos in, but you wouldn't put the effects on until after. But because he was low on studio time, they put the effects on at the to- at the same time, so it couldn't be changed after the fact, wow. um, as, as I understand it. Um, so yeah, it's uh, again the song was about just kind of having fun with an alien rather than being killed by one. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so so it, it's a really um, it's got a, it's a really interesting tone, a lot of fun. You can tell he's having fun playing it, and it's mm. yeah, it's just a lot of fun. Um, all right. Next track up is about a uh, uh, substance from a book that is not very fun, but this one is called Ice Nine. Oh, where am I? <laughs> there we go. Ooh. Oh, yeah, it's <laughs> all coming back. The bass has a really nice little snarl to it, too. Yeah. I think that's really of the time that ding, ding, whatever he's doing there. Yeah, that's very him, though. It's very Satriani. I mean, already we're like two songs into the album and he just like kicks off the song with just a very like kind of a slow, relatable melody. Yep. Nothing too out there that you can't follow along with. You know that that super famous Coldplay song purportedly ripped off one of his melodies. Hmm. Can't think of the name of the song while this is playing, but I, I don't know. you've heard it. <laughs> it's... That's really cool. This this reminds me, me and uh, Jonathan Hedlund are always talking about like the influence that music like this had on video game music at the same time and like this this to me just you could hear it coming up hmm. up in a Nintendo game you know <laughs> it's insane Like, it went from like the super super bassy. It's like he flipped a switch yeah. from one extreme to the next. Super bassy, super trebly. All bridge, all neck. <laughs> it's like using a power drill or something. 
That's sounded like crazy. there was some flange on the drums there at that point too. It's almost like in that when that first solo came in, it almost sounded like it was like super low budget. Yeah. Which is like really cool, you know. It's just like till it's still tell that he's just like he's just playing his heart out, you know, just trying to record this album on the cheap. <laughs> but I mean, he's like playing his ass off. Yep. And I mean, to give him credit, most of the song is this really melodic, like this melody line here. It's not all the shredding stuff. And even the shredding stuff is like really cool because it's not like a whole song of it. Yeah, and that's a lot of players at this time. He's not doing anything complicated, the arrangements or the, or the chord structures, but right. a lot yeah, of players like, at this time would just do something like whatever and they'd just be shredding for four straight minutes. But this almost like the first couple of songs just feel like a regular song structure, like the, the melody part would be where the lyrics were. Yep. And then he has like a, a solo section and then you go back to the verse and now this is like the outro solo. Well, it's funny when he talks about like a song surfing with the alien, it's like, Oh, it's about, you know, the concept of it and everything. It's like, well, how is the concept of it that if there's no lyrics? Hmm, maybe it's like in here. <laughs> in his in his heart. Yes. Well, th then the concept of this one is Ice Nine. So I, you know, I we talked about when this album shortly after it came out. Now, when I was in high school, I got really into Kurt Vonnegut. I was reading, you probably remember, I was just like reading all Kurt Vonnegut books like a like a dingbat. Mm -hmm. And um, <laughs> I got to the book Cat's Cradle from, it was 1963. It was one of his earlier books. And um, in it, there's a, it's, there's a substance called Ice Nine. So I'm, I'm reading the book and I'm like, Ice Nine? And then, you know, kind of, oh, that's where Joe Satriani got it from. Of course, I wouldn't know. There's no lyrics in the song. Uh, but it's about this, you know, I don't remember much about the book other than the Ice Nine was like a substance that like mm. could make, it would basically make water solid no matter what you know it would, it would be a, in a solid state no matter what time and it would like form like crystals and it would like mm. expand so it was like this kind of like apocalyptic book about this this kind of i don't know if it was developed for war or something but it was it, it got out of hand and it, it basically was destroying the world so it's kind of interesting that you know <laughs> going to it in the reverse order where i for years i knew about ice nine the song but then learning about why it was called that so um you know if it was an anthrax song it would have been like they would have said ice nine ice nine <laughs> it's a really bad ice <laughs> yeah very very obvious lyrics yeah <laughs> i'm the walking dude <laughs> um <Bunch of> clowns <laughs> all right <laughs> a bunch of clowns <laughs> where they're fucking jams and like friggin tweety bird <laughs> T-shirts and like a bunch of clowns. Yeah, they had. Yeah, that's right. They had a very like, um, like almost like skateboardery type, um, like fashion sense. Yeah, it was very weird. It's like you couldn't like it. I like I took them more seriously the first couple of albums when I saw pictures of them in like you know black leather and everything. And then around like you know eighty eight onward, it was just like the really like the 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 bright colored shorts and like the like the visors and everything and like the friggin' Looney Tunes shirts or whatever and it's just like what the f what are you doing 
Like it was supposed to be a friggin' metal band. And, you know, and then their music sounded goofy as a result. And then it was just kind of like. You didn't like I mean, I'm I, the Man? Yeah. Original I'm the Man. <laughs> yeah. Didn't we talk about that? We talked about that yeah, last week, like, too. Yeah, like last week. <laughs> I'm yeah. the Man 95. Like, let's, yeah, let's, yo, do that, yo, yo. let's do that thing that worked so well and make it eight minutes long and completely ruin the joke. There <laughs> 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 was that twist. You remember? Come on, let's twist again like we did last summer. <laughs> Just trying to cash in on the thing that you did well with. Yeah. It's, it's a long it's, tradition. All right. Yeah. What do you think of <laughs> what do you think of Ice Nine? I'm going to give that one a four. Um, I thought it was, um, I, I, another great track. I think it was, um, like I was saying before, I like the, um, I like the traditional song structure that he's going with so far. Mm-hmm. He's like, I mean, you know, that we know that Satriani's this great player. We know he's teacher to the greats. We know that he can mix modes and all this stuff, but it's just like, <laughs> oh, let me, re- let me read a little something about it. Oh, oh no, no. <laughs> a sinister sounding theme inspired by a substance in Kurt Vonnegut's Cat's Cradle, yep. Um, uh, it's got two accented intervals, a perfect fifth and a major third, providing some initial contrary motion before settling into a two-bar pumping rhythm figure using root fifth chords in parallel motion. Uh, four bars later, the ice codes enter, blah, blah, blah. This melody owes much to Jimi Hendrix in both its phrasing and content. It is stated twice before moving into this first variation, blah, 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 blah. A chiming, funky chordal figure... What else we got here? E flat Dorian solo number two, also eight bars long. I mean, this guy could transcribed all the solos. That can't be easy. Um, <laughs> no. Oh, hey, that, that's funny. It says uh, simultaneously running the side of the right hand of the string duh, 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 between the bridge and the neck. Oh, maybe he's not talking about what I was talking about. The wild treble till you can't stand tone of this section yields somewhat indescribable artificial harmonics. Solo number three, blah, 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 blah. The soloing becomes more intense as the space bec- becomes fewer as Ice Nine slowly fades to audio black. Mm. So, yeah, this goes, uh, but this is like, that is like probably 10% of what he wrote about that song. Oof. Well, <clears throat> anyways, uh, back to Earth. Um, <laughs> um, well, I mean, just to finish my earlier thought, I know that he he can do all this crazy stuff, this crazy musical stuff. But I really just like how he's, he's just kind of keeping it simple. He's giving you like melodies and stuff that you can latch onto. And I think he's smart doing that because that's why the album is, is so memorable is because it's not just like, just like sweep arpeggios and shredding and stuff that you just can't like remember. And there's, there's plenty of shredding for the, the shred lovers, but yeah, it's, it's something that you, you know, as soon as it kicked in, ding, 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 and I could remember it and you can, you can sing along to it. And that's not something you can do if he was just doing 64th notes. Right. Uh, I'll give it a four as well. I like, I really like the melody in this one. It's a little more sinister than the previous track. um, Much like the substance from the Kurt Vonnegut book. Okay, next track up is called Crushing Day. I love this. He's switching between C. Ionian and C. Lydian. <laughs> oh, that's right. I forgot. Yeah, I, I wanted <laughs> to get to it before you did.
Oh yeah. This is another classic like video game sounding melody. One that I really like about this is how full the bass makes the, uh, how full the bass sounds and how it makes like that, that last part of the song sound. Just yep. really grooves it up. You can actually hear the bass a lot more in this song than you can the previous ones. Yep. <laughs> so he's swinging a cat around by its tail. Yeah, this is like classic Nintendo music. You know, Jerry Bloom mentioned that getting Satriani was in part because the Japanese loved Satriani so much. So it was like a perfect uh, fill-in for after Blackmore left. Mm. Um, and that he could have had a lot of influence on, on the video game scoring. I just love where he's taking this song. And then this breakdown here is like freaking amazing. That's awesome. Cool riff. remember this part of the solo that's awesome he says here that the last notes of the chorus melody since stated over the intro are the same sound that opened Jimi Hendrix Foxy Lady hmm. not hearing that right now but make what you wonder what would it be like if he had a singer isn't that like an album or two he has singers on yeah um i actually think he did vocals yeah because he sang in squares i i don't i feel like i've heard one or two of them but yeah i think it might have been like a quarter of the album had vocals and the rest of it was, oh, you know, okay. he had like one or two songs with vocals and then the rest of them were instrumentals.
wonder if Marvel is going to take down this video on YouTube. Probably. They'll pay us $25,000 so you can have this video up for a year. Maybe we should use the other cover. We need more patrons. <laughs> We need more patrons so this video can get like 203 views on YouTube. <laughs> All right. That was Crushing Day. What do you think of that one? Hold on to your surfboards. I'm giving oh. another five. Oh, John is coming in hot tonight. He's in a oh, good yeah. mood. Yeah. Oh, I am in a good mood. This, uh, yeah, this song is is like probably like one of my favorites on the album. I mean, if, if you didn't already know <laughs> when I, how I was talking about it. Um, yeah, I mean, I just, I think the riff is awesome. I think the bass is like really awesome. I like how we kind of like feature the bass. You know, the bass was like very prominent. It was doing, so it wasn't, like nothing in this was doing anything except for the lead, you know, the solos. Um, we're doing anything that was really out there. And even the soloing, like with the when he started getting into doing some arpeggios and some of the other, you know, he played a little blues scale um, in there. It's just like he was kind of all over the place. But it's like maybe from knowing the album for so long. I mean, I follow all of it. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's it's yeah. nothing. It's not like if you hear uh, like like an Ingbe solo on just mm -hmm. like any given song and you're just like, all right, I have no idea where this begins and where this ends. Like yep. Satriani knows how to craft like a song and a solo. And I like, I really just love, he's got a really unique uh, guitar tone and sound on this album, which, you know, again, I don't know if it was achieved by, you know, just the, the budget was like not there. And, you know, maybe it was like, well, you know, it sounded kind of cheap or if this is what he intended, but I mean, it's, it's definitely unique. And, um, you know, like when you hear it, you're just like, yeah, this is the surfing with the alien like album sound. Mm -hmm. of like his guitar and everything. And it's just, it's great. It's, it's funny you mentioned that uh, blues thing. It says here in the notes, the next four bars contain an exciting pattern achieved by grouping eight sixteenth notes into two and three note subgroups and utilizing pull-offs before giving way to a descending blue scale sequence. Following are a few Chuck Berry-isms, some broken sixth intervals, fourths played as double stops and descending blue scale Sequence phrased in eighth notes triplets. So. Yeah, just like I was saying. Yeah, blue stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, blues, blue scale. <laughs> <laughs> I think this guy was getting paid by the word. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I will give this one a four. I really like it. Um, yeah, just very, um, it feels very cozy and comfortable listening to this after not listening to it in so long. And it also mm. is just like, why has it been so long since I listened to this? I should be, you know, I just, you know, I think you just listen, I listened to it so much when I was young and then just kind of moved on to different music and, and never really thought to revisit this one for a really long time. So it's, it's a lot mm -hmm. of fun. All right, the next track up is called Always With Me, Always With You, which doesn't sound like an instrumental, but sounds like the title of a song with words. Oh, yes. Yep. Get that, like, what sounds like a fretless bass. 
Or maybe even a synth. Yeah, it definitely sounds like a synth. Pretty little ditty. So my kids must have been in the studio and misplaced my bottle opener. So I've been opening my beer with scissors. So wonderful. If I if I if blood squirts all over my camera and I run out, you'll have to finish this episode by yourself. Sounds very safe. That's great. <laughs> I'm getting pretty good at it. something about a Nashville tuned guitar on this. I don't know what that means. Reminds me of nothing at all. <laughs> okay. And the backing track, think about it, it sounds like an album of the same year, like um, Accidentally on Purpose. Yeah, I was going to say, what's, it almost sounded like. What's that song? Uh, the, the second, Clouds and Rain. Clouds and Rain, yep. I mean, same, you know, same like within a year of each other. And that. That like artificial percussion, or maybe it's real. Maybe that's Bongo Bob Smith <laughs> playing the bongos for the chicken shake or maracas or the, whatever. The egg shaker, yeah, yeah, the egg shaker, chicken shake, <laughs> shake and bake. little ditty. What do you think of that one? I was going to say, that was a pleasant little ditty. But don't blow it out your ditty bag. <laughs> ditty bag. I'll get, what is a um, ditty bag? I, I, we, I think we talked about this before. What is a ditty bag? <laughs> I don't know. I always I always felt like it was like a like a vacuum bag, you know. So I have to replace, <laughs> I have to replace the ditty bag on my, on my cordless vacuum. My ditty bag. <laughs> I remember I remember that like there was this uh in a G.I. Joe episode with Sergeant Slaughter. <laughs> he says, They're gonna send you home in ditty bags. Itty bitty ditty bags. <laughs> I don't remember that. Which would have been out right around the time this this uh album was being released, and I still don't know 
what that I means. I just remember the, the Golden Girls, somebody said something to Sophia and she turned around and dismissively she said, eh, blow it out your ditty bag. <laughs> and the, and blow Blanche was shocked. <gasps> blow it out your ditty bag, you slut. <laughs> uh, well, ditty sounds a little close to titty. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. And those are the kind of observations you get only on the Deep Purple podcast. So uh, always with me, always with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, 3.5. That was a, a nice little ditty bag. It was a nice little ditty bag. Yeah. No, it was never it was never one of my favorites because, you know, I didn't like the slow stuff, you know, but mm-hmm. um, it was um, it, it was definitely like um, it was. Uh, kind of I think it's good placement on the album. Good track listing there. You know, it wasn't too long. Um, kind of slowed things up after like a few like high powered rockers. Um, and, you know, again, there was like some uh, some good melodies, some good rhythms in there and a good playing, of course. So, um, yeah, I thought it was uh, I thought it was nice. All right. Well, I will also give it a three point five. It was a nice little, you know, we've had a couple of really upbeat songs. Yeah, you got to bring people down a little bit first as you wind down the first side if you're listening to the record or cassette. And uh, that brings us into the, I guess, would have been the final track on the cassette or the vinyl. And that is uh, the very famous Satch Boogie. Yeah. Sounds like the beginning of that Sabbath song, too. And he, of course, played this with um, Deep Purple. I think we heard him on one of the live shows. This has been compared to like an up-tempo ZZ Top song by a lot of people. Hmm. All right. Which you can really hear right here. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Never really thought of it that way, but. Probably because when you first listened to this, you probably didn't even know what ZZ Top was. So a ditty bag is a, (laughs) um, I looked it up, a bag used by sailors to hold small articles such as needles and thread. Why would sailors be sewing? I don't know. It gets boring out there on the high seas. This is so great because it's obviously such a great live tune, but keeps it real short and sweet on the album. Yeah. And I mean, it sounds like he's just wailing away. It sounds like he's improv on this one. Mm-hmm. Like this some of the, the other only... solos sound very constructed, but this one sounds very off the cuff. This was the only track that used live drums. Huh. Yeah, this is great. Like this, he kind of has that kind of the backward flangey effect to like break things up a little bit. Yeah, like that reverse, reverse yeah. um, reverb on the snare. It says here they had to fade the song out very quickly at the end. 
because the drum machine they were using to keep time started getting picked up by the amplifier. I love stories like that. At the end, it was starting to kind of sound like Van Halen to me. Hmm. Okay. Like early Van Halen. Yeah, I can. I mean, I can see that. All right. What do you think of? Well, before we get into that, so this was. Uh, uh, he calls this uh, '80s rave up in the tradition of Jeff's Boogie by Jeff Beck, an hmm. old flash piece from his Yardbird days. Yardbird's days. Um. And then he says, kind of Beck meets Hendrix meets Gibbons meets Barry meets Vi. <laughs> that's that's a lot of meets. A lot of, a lot of people meeting each other there. Yeah, that's a big meetup. I don't know. I don't know if our meetup will be that star studded when we go to see Glenn Hughes. Mm. There you go. What do you think of Satch Boogie? I give that one a four. So, um, yeah, that's um, I, I like all the the elements that it incorporates in there. I like how it just kind of ties back to that. You know, it starts off with that little, you know, you know, that yeah. kind of classic, like, I don't, I don't know what kind of, like, yeah, what's, the, what's, like, the, uh, what's the black Sabbath song that starts the same way. Yeah. I don't know any of the, yeah, I think it's uh, like, um, it, it was the, you know, the first album, right? Yeah. Yeah, but it's like, I guess, is that like, um, you know, for percussion, is that like a really kind of a bluesy type of thing or it's a jazzy like a, type of is thing? Is it more jazzy? I don't know. It's, but, but either it's, way, it's, but it's, it's something, something everyone recognizes that yeah. it's like the, the Bo Diddley rhythm. Everyone recognizes it. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it sets the tone right away. It's like, OK, this is going to be like it's familiar. It's going to it's going to be fun. It's going to be upbeat. Um, and um yeah, I mean it's another another good uh, another good song, and like the the fact that um, you know you kind of uh, said that there were comparisons to like kind of a ZZ Top ish uh, type of thing, I could definitely hear that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, I always liked the song, which is good, and I always liked the song anyway because it was just very kind of like you know very fast, very driving, you know, just more more great playing in it. Like you know, nothing in here that really um, you know turned me off. I mean, even like in that kind of backwards drum part. Mm-hmm. where he was just basically tapping the whole time. It didn't feel like it got repetitive, you know? It's like, because he's not, he's not doing it to be like, you know, yeah. you know, and you're but just like, ugh. It feels like he taps with more purpose than a lot of. It's, yes. He's doing it. something with the tapping that's not just like, watch how fast I can go. It's like, I'm going to weave together a new part of the song or a a section or a rhythm or whatever it is. But I'm just doing it through the medium of tapping versus strumming or whatever. Well, because I feel like the way he did it was like the after the the rest of the song, you went into it and it was almost like halftime, you mm-hmm. know. Um, so it's like it was kind of like slow tapping, you know, because he was going like 
you know, uh, just basically the same run, like, you know, over and over until like that kind of, you know, bridge section or whatever it was ended. And then yep. they went back to the main part of the song. So, um, yeah, just really interesting, you know, more more cool stuff from Satch on this one. Yep, absolutely. I will give it a four as well. Always like Satch Boogie. It's always a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. You talked about how the last track uh, always with me always with you was maybe not your uh your particular style but uh the title of the next song sounds like it might be and it's called hill of the skull oh yes yeah this is like an epic interlude almost a short one yeah very short Is the transcription of this can be played written using four separate guitars? Wow. I mean, this has that feeling of it of like you would hear them in that part of that movie where something yeah. bad is happening, and in slow mo, the guy's going, No, where <laughs> he's diving toward like something. Yeah, they threw the, the secret, the special item into the or the, the bad guy got the secret amulet or something. And with this, I will rule the world. No! Let's throw in a bunch of squealing guitars at the end. There we go. But there's no there's no solo to speak of. It's just really just this quick melodic interlude. Mm. Very so what good. Do you, what do you think of that one? You know, I never really thought much of it before, but paying attention to it, it does really have that kind of like, you know, um, epic kind of like the villain has just like, you know, gotten the upper hand type of uh, mm-hmm like kind of like mood to it that moment in the movie where it's like seems all is lost our our hero cannot yes. possibly win now right um but yeah i'll give it a 3.5 i thought it was um i thought it was good for a short uh kind of a song you know again it shows off his um you know his just melodic skills you know it's another you know you can just you can hear it you can hum it in your head so Hundred percent. I'll give it a three point five as well. Like it. It's um, but you know, it's it's more of an interlude than a full song. But it's but I like yeah. it a lot. Um, all right. Next track up is called Circles. Ah, of course. I like how with every single track on this album, I'm like, I don't remember which one this is, and then I start playing it. I'm like, oh yeah, this one. Yeah. Especially when there's no lyrics. How would you know? Oh yeah, this is this is a really cool one. Like this delay he's got on the guitar. Mm. 
one of those super strong delays where you almost can't play. Is he is he actually playing all of that or is it just the effect? Yeah. It's like him and Steve Vai just get these great clean sounds when they're playing clean. Uh-oh, John. This what? opening was a halftime feel. Two-bar reggae-influenced rhythm. Is that going to affect your um, rating? Maybe. <laughs> nothing reggae this about not, this. <laughs> this is nothing reggae about this. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> yeah, shredded man. <laughs> Pass that whammy bar, man. <laughs> Says he's using a lot of wah pedal on this. Wild whammy work. modulates to A minor and then back to E Dorian, of course. Of course. Nice. And back into the soft part. Like the dynamics. That's a cool effect. fade out on this one. Not this bungo bob. It sounds like it sounds like simulated wind chimes. Yeah. Or maybe it's a real wind chimes, I don't know. Knowing him, he found out some clever way to do that in the studio without using actual wind chimes. Yeah. Well, all right, circles. What do you think of that one? Um, yeah, I, I think I'm going to give it a three. Um, I, I know this was like um, not one of my not one of my favorite songs. I mean, it's it's um, it's still good, um, but. Um, you know, just um, I, I don't think it's, um, you know, has the momentum of the other songs. Mm -hmm. um, although, I mean, I do like the the dynamics between it being like the slower part and like the the heavier part. Um, and it's just more of the same at this point, you know, um, just, you know, uh, some of the same soloing and just, uh, you know, structuring of the songs. I like the fact that they're short, though. I mean, I appreciate that he's not burdening us with these huge, long arrangements you know yeah i mean the longest song in the album which song was it 
it's like five it's just a little over five minutes yeah it didn't um, even feel like but know. there's a lot of shorter like three minute type songs right yeah, crushing day actually was the longest song on the album by quite a bit oh no i'm sorry second longest the last track is the longest. I will give this one a 3.5. I like it. I like I just really like the that that whole uh melody. I, I really enjoy and uh yeah. It's a fun song and they're doing something. Again, the, with the time constraints and the budget constraints, he's still somehow finding time to be experimental. And well that's what it sounds like to us, right? But to him maybe it was like, "Oh man, I didn't do what I wanted to do." On this album, right. you know, I wanted to have more time. I wanted to, this to sound more like that because we never know what was actually in his head. Uh, but to us, this is just a classic album. And um, it's got a lot of cool, interesting stuff on it that was done, even even under the time constraints, was done really well. Um, so the next track up is would have been the titular Lords of Karma. Would have been. Woulda, coulda, shoulda. This is another example of him using pitch access, which we talked about on the last Satriani episode. Pitch access theory. It says this opens with a, an electric sitar. Hmm. Is that what we're hearing? That dum 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 dum. Yeah. Like it's kind of like chugs along, like I think, like Crushing Day. Maybe a little bit like that. We get something new, that kind of sitar sound. I would never think of that as a sitar. It just sounds like a like high treble guitar. Hmm. saying that he's using using a lot of eastern modalities on this one hence the sitar yeah you can tell this is a part where he goes into the James Bond slash secret agent modality oh it might have been that that's what I was thinking going off <laughs> oh yeah he's describing something here as Joe's lizard down the throat sound I don't know what okay. that means This must be the electric sitar, right? Mm-hmm. 
They didn't have uh, Bongo Bob bringing any tabla for this? to achieve a pretty interesting sound even though they're using largely drum machines the, the the fact that they brought in some actual hi-hats and snares to kind of it makes you wonder why they didn't just bring up the whole drum set yeah but maybe they just didn't like maybe they the plan was to not do that they didn't like the uh -huh. way it sounded in order to it distracts you from the fact that it's a programmed or a drum machine when it's when so much of it is uh got actual drums layered into it as well. Make how he builds on this last part here. He starts layering harmonies in. Lords of Karma. What do you think of that? That was very, very interesting. Um, 3.5 for that one. Um, yeah, I like I like where he's going. He's not he's like he's kind of um he's kind of building throughout the album here. He's given a little uh diversity, mm -hmm. um, which I like. Um, you know, this one felt a little bit longer, but I mean it also was like kind of like um felt like kind of darker, mm -hmm. you know, throughout. And then at the end, it kind of like had this, you know, kind of triumphant sounding fade out. Um, you know, it went kind of in a, di a different direction because the whole song sounded kind of minor key. And then it felt like it went to like something like, you know, like major key or a little more upbeat during the fade out. Um, but I mean, I like the addition of the, you know, the sitar and like, you know, it just sounds like he's trying to keep it fresh and, you know, do as much as he can um, on this album. All right. That's very cool. I'll give it a 3.5 as well. I think it's, yeah, it's a, this album is just a, it's a mood, you know, it just, it's, it's a, I remember just putting this one on and I don't even know what the hell we were doing when we put this on, but, you know, probably just yeah. goofing, goofing off playing video games or whatever. Maybe that's why I'm thinking of video games so much. Um, but yeah, it's just got a really great, this, you know, and this is an album that, you know, Sever and I know had it in their tape collection or their CD collection. Mm -hmm. You know, you had it, Paul had it, I had it, Jeff had it. Um, I don't know anybody that didn't really have this one floating around. So it was always kind of on in the background, but great track. Uh, second to last track, the penultimate track on this album is another short one called Midnight. Oh yes, this is this is really cool.
This is very cool. This is like a true, like, this is just very well composed. because it starts and ends with him playing solo and just brings in a little percussion in the middle part. And this is so free form, you couldn't have really done it to any percussion. Mm -hmm. Very abrupt. <laughs> Very abrupt ending. Yeah. What do you think of Midnight? That was uh, that was really good. I'll give it a three point five. Um, I thought it was a uh, it was a really really cool, compact little instrumental. You know, I like how it kind of uh, I like how in these shorter instrumentals he packs a lot in there, mm -hmm. um, and and still makes it interesting. Yeah, and both of them were solo free. Just they they were just true compositions. Just. No, I don't want to say no frills because that sounds really hard to play. Yeah, but I mean, <laughs> he's, he's but two I mean, hand the, tapping, you know. Yeah, I mean, just like what he's doing, you're like listening to like the precision of what he's doing, like at the beginning and the end, for instance, and like just the the mood through the whole song, and you're just locked into it, just like just kind of following that fluidity, and then it just kind of like just stops. Yep, and then you're like, that's it. So it really, it's good at like kind of grabbing you. Absolutely. I will give this one a four. I really like this one. Thought it was a great, mm. great interlude. Um, and that takes us to our final track, which is called Echo. Oh, yeah. Listen to that like. Really snarly bass. Boom, <laughs> boom. Yeah. This is like makes me feel like hot streets in Miami at night. You know, just like there's a there's a detective and he's like he's not he's he's going against what the chief said he should do and he's investigating that guy. <laughs> he told him not to investigate. He's going through old files in the warehouse with a flashlight. Like you know, our heroes—they're—they're they're sneaking into the lab. Yep. So they can get the, so they can hack the computer. I'm almost into the mainframe. Come on, we don't have much more time. I'm in. This song's got a great vibe. This is in 5-4. One cool thing Satriani doesn't do is it doesn't go like 
the Dream Theater wrote and throw in all mm-hmm. these, like, to me, like, the, the hallmark of a great odd time signature song is the fact that you don't even pick up on it. But a lot, right. of, a lot of prog bands thrive on switching between time signatures and going doing all these crazy things, but he hasn't done anything too wild on this album time signature-wise. They say, again, a very piano-like Nashville-strung guitar. Hmm. I see a Nashville-strung guitar? Yeah. Doing a lot of palm muting here on the solo. You might be reading the same Wikipedia entry I am on <laughs> Nashville Strong Guitars. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out what it is, yeah. <laughs> so it's, I guess it's like a high-strung, like a, a type of high-strung tuning. Yeah, replacing the E, A, and D. E, A, D, and G strings with a lighter gauge string to allow tuning an octave higher than standard. They say they use this on Pink Floyd's Hey You, the Kansas song Dust in the Wind, Rolling Stones Wild Horses. See, it's funny because you don't you don't think of things like that when you are kind of a, uh, a beginner uh, guitar player or just an average guitar player. You know that these musicians and like you know all these different songs on the radio or albums or guys like this use all these different um, all these different tunings uh, different styles different you know uh, you know which you know require different types of uh, you know probably different gauge strings and you know just a lot of stuff goes into it than just picking up like a standard tune guitar and being like oh let me just belt this out that's the best trick I always had in my arsenal oh give me that regular old guitar <laughs> I can play it moderately well. <laughs> right there with you, my friend. I don't think I've ever heard the term Nashville strung guitar, so. I don't think so either. It's cool that they give those examples of a few songs that are that everybody knows that you can kind of think of. Yeah. So like I'm kind of looking at it more like what I was thinking before, which was, oh, it's just really trebly, or they've really, you know, he's really using his neck pickup or whatever. But it's probably just the fact that he's using these lighter gauge strings. Mm-hmm.
All right. So that was Echo. Weird. Weird name for that song. I mean, how do you name instrumentals, though? It's hard to name them. Hmm. What do you think of this one, John? Um, I'm, hmm. You know, I'm I'm going to give it a 2.5. Really? Yeah, middle of the road. Um, I just feel like, I mean, at this point, it's like um, it was, I mean, I like that it's a, a slow note that he ended the album on. Like you can tell he's, you know, taking time in the, uh, you know, kind of the, the ordering process of the songs, everything like that. So yeah, cool note to end on, but I just, you know, I felt like it as opposed to the other songs, like this didn't really grab me, you know, it just, it felt like, um, just kind of felt like noodling. Yeah. You know, where the other songs really, I felt like had a lot of theme and intention to them. This was just kind of like the, the kind of like mellow, like ending instrumental. Yeah. Um, like, and I mean, I always kind of felt that way about it. Like uh, I never really paid much attention to it. Um, and I mean, that doesn't mean it's bad. Um, it's just um, not, um, not as interesting. I don't, I don't think. Yeah. I would say um, I'll give this one a three. I really like the groove, the do, 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 do. Like I think that yeah. part's really cool, but then you know the, the solo part is very like like all this like kind of like up and down the stairs sort of yeah, stuff. start and stop yeah or maybe as they call it here uh, where is it the third chorus starts with a rapid fire six note ostinato that lasts for two measures before turning into sequential scale line and ending with a screaming artificial harmonic. Uh, yes, an asinato, yes. Yes, exactly. What I know, I took the words right out of your mouth. Um, I'll have a link in the show notes to this, uh, to a PDF of this <laughs> Hal Leonard book, because it's actually very interesting. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's, I, I like the groove and everything of it, but I think that I, the overall, the first half of the album, I think, kind of hits a little harder. And then he gets yeah. a little more experimental, which is fine. Uh, but the second sure. half is a little bit, um, it's weaker, but I, I still think it's overall just a really <clears throat> fun, interesting album to listen to. Yeah. All right. Well, while John busts out the spreadsheet, um, I will do something equally as important which is to thank our foundation level patrons coming in at the three pound aromatic feed tier. We have Simon Ford at the $3 and 33 cent halfway to evil tier. We have Stephen Sharp and Duncan Leesk at the $3. Nobody's perfect tier. We have Peter Gardo, Ian DeRosier, Mark Roback, Stuart McCord, Ivan Fjeldbu Runar Siemensen JJ Stenard Ruinous Inadequacies John Maselli Michael Boyette and Corey Morissette 
at the one dollar and seventy one cent I want my own tier tier we have Rich Young at the 10 kroner tier Karsten Lau at the one pound tier Lord Longford and at the one dollar made up name tier we have the dying with the alien leaky mausoleum Stephen Somerville the concerto 1999 fanatic Hank the Tank private eyes Ashen Lionel <laughs> Blackmore tights Steve down to Earth Kohler and Zwopper the electric alchemist thank you so much to all of you for your generous support of the Deep Purple Podcast. And without further ado, you know what time it is. All right, John, where does... Joe Satriani's Surfing with the Alien rank in our overall album rankings. Well, this should not be a surprise to anybody um, based on our ratings here, but it's in the uh, the upper half of our ratings here, 7.55. Just a little bit of a variance, a 0.05 variance, probably because I gave that last song a little bit lower, but we basically rated it the same. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, it's coming in. Um, it's it's tied actually uh, for the album that is um, right next to it. There is slide it in the U.S. release, and uh, just a, a tad below it, our buddy Tommy Bolin with Teaser. Mm. So in very good guitar company, um, I would say. Not that there's a lot of bad guitar company on this list. Not on this list, nope. So um, yeah, I think. Um, that I think that uh, that's pretty pretty accurate, pretty well well earned place there on the list. Um, not not surprising at all. Um, I think it's um, I think it's a great album, much better than his uh, than the debut. Um, yeah, his first album, a uh, very um, you know a lot more um, coherent. I would I would agree. Yeah. Um, this album. Peaked at number 10 in Australia, number 53 in Canada, number 16 in New Zealand, and number 29 on the U.S. Billboard 200. The album was certified gold in Australia, which means 35,000 copies, silver in the U.K., 60,000 copies, and platinum in the U.S. with a million copies. So did very well in the U.S. Um, It was re-released in 2007 as a 20th anniversary release, and then a super deluxe version was released in 2020, very early uh, 2020, Um, and that featured uh, the backing tracks. So, you know, you could, if you were one of these guys who wrote this book here, you could solo along on your own um, with the backing tracks. Good luck. Good luck. Well, if these guys could transcribe it, I guess they could play it, but um, definitely not not something I'm going to do. so I uh, got a review here from Kerrang. It, sell, it says, Joe Satriani surfing with the alien. Um, four and a half Ks, how they rank their albums. Um, it says, look elsewhere in this defying-ish, um, de- I'm sorry, deaf defying-ish of the mighty K. And you're sure to find Jethro Tull's highly respected guitar star, Martin Barr, underlining his astute opinion of today's NGM's new guitar masters. 
uh, that whilst these wonderful whiz kids are highly developed technically, their material tends to merge into a fast-fingered blur after a couple of tracks. I'd be interested to hear Barr's opinion on Joe Satriani, for here's a guitarist with every lick and trick in the book up his sleeve, all itching to be summoned by a fistful of lightning-fast digits. And yet here's a man who can also write and interpret some memorable tunes as well. Check out the up-tempo ZZ ish romp of surfing with the alien the funky ice nine and the double delicious echo for example but what makes satriani so refreshing isn't his ability to dish out runs so frighteningly fluid that many aspiring young guitarists might instantly be put off their 29.99 pound woolworth's deluxe for life but the facts that he adapts so naturally to any kind of material he chooses to tackle rather like a modern day tommy bolan or Jeff Beck, zapped full of Steve Vai histrionics. Surfin isn't a full steam ahead barrage of molten metal a la Chastain, but something much more complex and colorful, and consequentially something that should be appeal to more discerning observers amongst us, like Martin Barr, in fact. This is quite brilliant showcase of Joe Satriani's extraordinary talent and should ensure the exciting Californian will overcome the dubious distinction of being Mari Marino's favorite guitarist and hit megastar status before too long. Mark Putterford. Putterford. A pretty favorable review. I would say. I would say sp spot on. Um Got two more reviews. One is from All Music. Um, Surfing with the Alien belongs to its era like Are You Experience belongs to its own. Perhaps hmm. it doesn't transcend time the way Jimi Hendrix's 1967 debut does, but Joe Satriani's 1987 breakthrough can be seen as a gold standard of guitar playing of the mid to late 80s. Kind of goes on through some of the tracks. Um and then says, stiff drum beats, sparkling production, so much stuff that it can seem a bit like a relic from another era. But it's fine that it doesn't transcend its time. It captures the best of its era and is still impressive in that regard, which I think is very well said. It is very of its time. Then the wonderful Ivan Fjeldbu once again answers the call and sent in a um, Norwegian magazine review from a, a Norwegian magazine called Street Fighter issue from April, May 1988. Um, it was the precursor to Scream magazine that still exists today. Street Fighter had a scoring system of 0 to 100 points. Serving, surfing with Alien got 65 points, which means that it was perceived as a really good album. Um, he put a photo and then he did a translation, as he always does, which is awesome. And they wrote, this is an excellent album for guitar freaks. Joe Satriani is one of the greatest guitar players today, and he really proves his chops on this new solo album. This is, like his previous album, Not of This Earth, a 100% instrumental album. What is negative about that is that it's too boring with only instrumental songs through the whole album. I would have been much more satisfied if he had joined up with a good singer. But of course, the guitar playing matters a lot in this album. The guitar playing alone is worth 90 points, but I don't want to give such a high score for a purely instrumental album. But what could have been great? But what would have been if a great vocalist could have sung more of the songs? Well, we must take this album as the study of a great player work that it is. Joe Satriani has his distinctive style. And when a song starts, you can hear that it's him immediately. Guitar Freaks must buy this album. Agreed. I like it. And before I could even play a note, I bought this album. And Same. Then never could. I don't think I could play many notes from this album. But that's it. 
That is surfing with the alien for you. Whoever would have thought that we'd get to this album one day? Um, us probably. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> all right, fine. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, with all the yeah, I mean, yeah, one day way back when we were just like, ah, we got to do shades of deep purple. <laughs> <laughs> early on. <laughs> Yeah, already on. jaded. Oh, oh God, already, it's, we could, it's our third episode. We gotta do freaking shades of deep purple. <laughs> we can't even get to any of this other stuff until way later. But here we are, folks. That's right. Here we are. Joe Satriani, surfing with the alien. Yeah. So yeah, good stuff. I'm glad we revisited this. This is, uh, you know, definitely. Um, I I agree with that. I think it is a, um, you know, um, a defining. Defining instrumental uh, rock, instrumental guitar album of uh, of the era, for sure. One hundred percent. Really, a lot of fun listening to it, and um, mm. yeah, excited to get into some more Satriani. We're, we're we're averaging about one Satriani episode a year, so yeah. It's funny as we get into these patterns, I'm noticing like, oh, we do like a one covers album a year. Oh, we do one Satriani album a year. Oh, we're gonna do like maybe one Blackmore's Night album every three years or <laughs> whatever it is. That's fine. I'm just, I'm just telling you that so that you won't quit the show. Um, Thanks. But you know, as you, as you, as you start stacking all of these things up, you're like, wow, like that, you know, it almost covers a full year for you. <laughs> you just start touching on things once a year and, and there's still so mm-hmm. much left. People are always, whenever they right. find out that I do this podcast, how do you think of, how can you talk about deep purple? What are the episodes like 10 minutes long? I'm like, no, nah, like two, two and a half hours. <laughs> And how often do you do it every week? They're like, how can you still have stuff to talk about? I mean, we've barely scratched the surface. Well, I mean, it's also not just Deep Purple. True. Even if it was, we could probably still. Yeah. Well, I mean, hey, we were like, we were talking about, uh, you know, we were just like in the middle of like talking about this album earlier. And we started talking about freaking Diddy Bags and... (laughs) Whatever else, Stevie Wonder, like we just start going off on these tangents. So, I mean, it's I got to put a ditty bag in the show art. <laughs> I don't even know what they look like. It's like a feel like, what the hell is this? Oh, it's just a, I don't know. It's a ditty bag. <laughs> it's probably just a sack, you know. <laughs> well, no, then that would be called a ditty sack. <laughs> a ditty sack. <laughs> <laughs> Blow it out your ditty sack. <laughs> Sounds wrong. <laughs> Diddy sack. <laughs> oh boy. Well, with that, my friend, I'll meet up with you next week and we'll do it all again. Well, not this album. We'll do something different. All right. Sounds good. <laughs> all right. Later. Blow out your Diddy bag. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Deep Purple podcast. If you like what you hear and would like more episodes in the future, please donate on Patreon to support the show. You can also leave us a review in Apple Podcasts to help new people discover the show. You can follow us on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for show updates. See deeppurplepodcast.com for more details. Thank you for listening.
<laughs> I have a ditty bag of licorice here. <laughs> wait, wait, I gotta look and I gotta see what it looks like. An itty bitty ditty bag.